Roman Republic post-series episode 8, Livia, The Golden Years. This episode is a continuation of the life of Livia in DOTRR's miniseries focusing on notable women during the fall of the Roman Republic, although at this point in Livia's life, uh, this is the early Roman Empire we're in. If you are just starting the series here, I really recommend listening to the previous episodes Livia, First Empress of Rome, and Livia, and Imperial Intrigue. Or, you know, just for full context, maybe listen to the whole of Death of the Roman Republic if you haven't. But as a short summary of where we left her, Livia's rather insane life had leveled out, at least in terms of major external threats. She and Augustus focused on maintaining peace in Roman society, which for the most part succeeded. They also focused on maintaining peace within their imperial family, which was less successful. Their family was plagued by unworthy members being banished, courtesy of Augustus, premature deaths, courtesy of Livia, if you believe some conspiracy theorists, and Livia's son Tiberius retiring for a few years. He did eventually return to politics when he was sorely needed. When Augustus died in 14 CE, Livia was about 72 years old. In his will, Augustus left Livia a lot of money, as well as vague powers and influence by posthumously adopting her as his daughter. The prosperous relationship Livia enjoyed with Augustus being able to quietly advise her husband behind the scenes was not one that she would have with her son. This episode, like last episode, will include intrigue and drama in the Julio-Claudian dynasty, yet will not include a ton of actions that Livia enacts herself, but rather her reaction to events around her. But that is a common theme in all of these episodes focused on Roman women. They might have been rich, they might have been aristocratic, but they were disempowered in an explicitly patriarchal society. As Dowager Empress, Livia would clash with some of these patriarchal values held by the new head of household in ways she didn't when Augustus was alive. But before we get to that drama, with Augustus's passing, his succession plan was activated. Livia's son Tiberius was 54 years old. He was an experienced politician and general who had shared Augustus's powers as princeps with him for a few years and now held them on his own. While he had quit politics once in life before, he had changed his mind and was now the most powerful man in his world. The Roman Empire's first transfer of power was successful and complete. Tiberius' immediate heirs were his biological nephew, now adopted son Germanicus, and Tiberius' biological son Drusus. Yet, in the ether of exile was Agrippa Posthumus. He was unpopular, unadopted, and irrelevant to Roman politics, yet he was still a grandson of Augustus. Shortly after the death of Augustus, the guards who kept watch on Agrippa Posthumus were ordered to execute him. He was 25 years old. The death was reported to Tiberius, who denied that he had ordered this. That's all we know for certain. According to Tacitus, Tiberius claimed that it was Augustus who ordered his grandson killed. Whoever ordered the assassination, be it Augustus, Tiberius, or even Livia, the outcome was the same. A possible rival was neutralized. I find this parallels Octavian's assassination of Ptolemy Caesarian, the son of Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, whom Octavian ensured was dead at the start of his reign, so that there would not be another Caesar to challenge him. Tiberius's former wife, Julia the Elder, did not long survive the death of her son Agrippa Posthumus. She was 52 years old, had endured the deaths of all three of her sons, and had spent 14 years in exile under Augustus's watchful eye. She and Tiberius had once been wed, yet they had both grown to despise each other. 
Tiberius came out of this far better than she, but years later, Tiberius was still bitter towards her, and is alleged by the ancient historian Suetonius to not even allow her to leave her house or receive visitors, while the ancient historian Tacitus states that she died from distress over the murder of a group of posthumous, the ancient historian Cassius Dio states that she died of starvation. But that's just all in a day's word for old Tiberius Caesar Augustus, who now had the reins on power. I'm Mr. Manager! A mature politician in general, he was groomed to take this position by Augustus. And while your gut instinct would be to think that mother and son would make for an indomitable team in politics, Livia was a constant thorn and tension in his side during his reign because... Uh, be noted, strong language is going to be used here. That is not technically swear words. She always makes everything about her. Ugh. She's the last person I ever want to need something from. Well, she likes to be needed, just as long as it doesn't cost her anything. It's like she gets off on being withholding. Whoa. Look who's got something to say. <laughs> I'm mom, and I want to shoot down everything you say so I feel good about myself. Okay. <laughs> hey. Finally, I'm an uptight <laughs> You old horny slut! Well, no one's gonna top that. Now, Tiberius never went so far as to commit matricide like his great-grandnephew Emperor Nero did, and still allowed plenty of honors to be heaped upon his mother, but a tension existed between the Emperor and Livia. Here is a quick list of headaches the two caused each other in Tiberius' reign. At the start of his reign, Tiberius' position was that Livia should be a model and reflect the role of Roman women during the Roman Republic, that being restriction to the home and domestic tasks. That had been Livia's front while married to Augustus, yet Augustus still took her advice. But Tiberius seemed less interested in such advice. This restrictive outlook on Livia's role in life clashed with her former informal advisory position as Empress Consort, and it clashed with the ambiguous status she gained with religious association with Augustus's cult and the status she had as his legal daughter. In demonstration of this clash in opinion, Livia wanted to host a banquet for Roman politicians and their wives, which Roman women could not simply do on their own. While Livia might have been able to, due to the titles heaped upon her after Augustus's death, Tiberius interfered and compromised. Livia would be allowed to invite women to a banquet with the Senate's permission, and Tiberius would invite their husbands. As stated by Anthony A. Barrett in his book Livia, First Lady of Imperial Rome, the first potential crisis had passed over smoothly. Things would only get worse. In another example, Tiberius was upset at how visible Livia was in the aid and recovery efforts in Rome after fires in 16 CE. Apparently, Livia had been assisting victims and urging and encouraging people as she had done when Augustus was alive. But in Tiberius's opinion, such activities should be outside the woman's sphere of influence. By far the funniest issue was when the Senate wanted to rename the months of September and October to Tiberius and Livius, just as Quintilus and Sextilus were named July and August for Julius Caesar and Augustus. Tiberius denied that either him or his mother should be months on the calendar as they were mere mortals compared to those gods. He also asked the Senate what they would do when the time came that there were 13 Caesars. A serious fight occurred between Livia and Tiberius when Livia petitioned that a recent Roman citizen should be eligible to become a court juror. 
While recent Roman citizens were not entitled to be jurors, it was hard to say no to someone with as much political clout as Livia. Tiberius relented, but made it clear he only did so because he was pressured by his mother. Livia was enraged at Tiberius for such comments and produced letters that Augustus had written to her about Tiberius. This girl is the nastiest skank I've ever met. Do not trust her. She is a fugly slut. As detailed by Anthony A. Barrett, she read out some of them, dredging up her late husband's views on Tiberius's sour nature and his intolerance. Tiberius was put out less by the opinions expressed by Augustus, he can hardly have been unaware of them, than the fact that his mother had held onto these letters and used them so vindictively. You know, everybody thought Dad was the ruthless one, but I gotta hand it to you. If you'd been born after those feminists, you would have been the real gangster. Why you gotta be so mean? Independent of Livia and Tiberius's faltering relationship, other things were not peachy keen in Tiberius's empire. Five years into his reign, in 19 CE, Tiberius's adopted son Germanicus died at the age of 33. A young, intelligent man, he was becoming an experienced, popular general. Yet in the prime of his life, Germanicus died. He believed he was fatally poisoned by a Roman governor in Syria, Gnaeus Calpurnius Piso. Romans deeply grieved the passing of their young, heroic general Germanicus, a brilliant youth taken too early like his father Drusus, Livia's son and Tiberius's brother. When Germanicus's wife, Agrippina the Elder, arrived in Rome with her husband's remains, common Romans and officials publicly grieved with her. Germanicus's ashes were placed in the mausoleum of Augustus in lavish fashion. Yet absent from all this ceremony and grief were Tiberius and Livia, displeasing the Roman populace and giving ammo for conspiracy theories. The ancient historian Tacitus believes that Tiberius and Livia would be called out for crocodile tears if they were seen in public, and that they did not allow Germanicus's mother to attend her son's funeral. To Tiberius and Livia, they were probably trying to show composed responses, emulating their response to Drusus's death years previous. Livia had grieved her son, and Tiberius grieved for his brother, yet they both carried on with their duties. Gnaeus Calpurnius Piso, the man who had allegedly poisoned the young Germanicus, was laying low before trying to return to his province of Syria. Piso clashed and lost against the new governor and returned to Rome to face trial, where he and his wife Placina were charged with murder and treason. Tiberius did not outright call them guilty, but allowed the Senate to decide their fate. And the Senate looked like they were fixing to execute them. In the streets, Romans wanted Piso dead as well, and his wife Placina, who had started in his corner, started to drift away from her husband, hoping to save herself. Having already lost the court of public opinion, and likely to lose in the court of senatorial opinion, Piso committed suicide. In his final letter, he pledged loyalty to Tiberius and Livia, begged his sons not suffer because of him, yet didn't say anything in defense of his wife who had abandoned him. Tiberius would go on to possess some of Piso's property, but still leaving some to his family, and exile Piso's lieutenants in Syria. As for Placina, she appealed to Livia for support, and had distanced herself from her apparently guilty husband. Tiberius would then appeal for Placina's innocence, and she was acquitted of involvement although her story does not end there. 
In 23 CE, four years after the death of his adopted son Germanicus, Tiberius's only biological child, Drusus, died at the age of 36. To lose his only son devastated Tiberius. Alas, that these evil days should be mine. The young perish and the old linger. No parents should have to bury their child. For thoughts on how Tiberius felt about being princeps and his ability to govern, especially when it came to his mother, as stated by Anthony A. Barrett, there were occasions when Tiberius had to admit essentially that he was beaten, that he could not prevent his mother's involvement in governance. In these cases, he could do little more than acquiesce while dissociating himself as far as possible from what had transpired. And speaking of dissociating, Tiberius made the decision in 26 CE, now 12 years into his rule, to retire from Rome again. You can't keep getting away with it! Now, Tiberius did not retire as emperor simply from the city of Rome, administering it from the luxurious island of Capri. Years preceding this, Tiberius had been taking longer and longer vacations by Capri and placing more and more trust and responsibilities upon a man outside his family, the Praetorian prefect Lucius Aelius Sejanus. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a promotion. Welcome aboard, Mr. Manager. Wow, a Mr. Manager! Well, manager. We, we would just say manager. Sejanus would serve as Tiberius's point man in Rome, ensuring the emperor's will was carried out. Of course, with his boss not actually on the ground, this gave Sejanus a lot of oversight and little accountability. I'm the king of the world! <laughs> but this isn't a podcast about the struggles of Tiberius's reign, and I'm going to stop talking about most of Tiberius's drama after this little section here. He spent the last 11 years of his rule being pretty checked out of being the Roman emperor. Not that Sejanus was running the show the whole time. Be careful not to choke on your aspirations. Kind of like how his mother has a poisonous reputation, Tiberius also has a mixed reputation in history. From what I understand, and again, I'm not a Roman historian, I am just a dude with a mic, Tiberius has been dragged a lot by historians and ancient historians. Ancient writers may have just had a bone to pick with him and exaggerated alleged cruelty and incompetence, probably due to the fact he was nowhere near as popular as Augustus, and he let Sejanus terrorize Rome for a few years, but he made it up by executing him. Politics, baby. All things considered, though, nothing went catastrophically wrong in Rome during Tiberius's reign, and comparing his rule to later Roman emperors, on balance, Tiberius seems to have done a decent job as emperor, who has a lot of sensationalized history going against him. Getting to the meat of the reason of this second retirement, some attribute Sejanus encouraging Tiberius to leave, and women of the imperial family causing him grief. His mother Livia, Germanicus's mother Antonia, Germanicus's wife Agrippina the Elder, and Drusus's widow Livilla. Precisely why Tiberius retired is not known for sure, but it was probably a combination of family stressors, stress from his unpopularity among the Roman populace, and the fact that he never truly wanted this job, evident when he had temporarily retired once already. All those stressors combined, I can understand why someone might feel burnt out and retire to a vacation island if that was an option available to you. I had a lot of time to think, all right? And you know what I realized? 
I'm burned out. As written on Tiberius's Wikipedia page, the empire continued to run under the inertia of the bureaucracy established by Augustus rather than through the leadership of the princeps. By the time that her son retired to Capri and left Sejanus in charge, Livia was about 85 years young. She had only experienced one serious malady about three years before. Tiberius had been on a purported health vacation, but had returned to Rome to tend to his mother. When the elderly Livia recovered, the Senate celebrated with a Thanksgiving banquet and games. Religious priesthoods were involved in celebration too, associating Livia's recovery with the divine. Tiberius wasn't the only male family member that Livia treated less than kindly at times. Claudius, son of Livia's son Drusus, was born with a club foot and believed to be mentally impaired. Augustus had kept this less than perfect member of the imperial family out of the public eye when he was alive, and Claudius's own mother, Antonia, didn't treat him with much regard, nor did Claudius's grandmother, Livia. Yet, they still saw something in the boy. Augustus noted in a letter to Livia that while having a private conversation with Claudius was awkward, he seemed to be a decent public speaker. While today we can call the imperial family cruel for ignoring a family member for physical limitations beyond their control, this was the standard of Roman society at the time, and Livia would show some interest in Claudius, as his first wife was the granddaughter of one of Livia's good friends. While Claudius was underestimated and ignored for most of his life by the movers and shakers in the imperial family, Livia's grandson would be Rome's fourth emperor after the third emperor, her great-grandson Caligula, was assassinated. As Augustus's wife, Livia was a generous and magnanimous figure. As previously mentioned, she historically tried to help the victims of fires in Rome and would also pay dowries of daughters of impoverished families. As stated by Anthony A. Barrett, she had the power to harm, but harmed no one, and no one had reason to fear her power. As Augustus advanced the careers of his friends, so did Livia. While without official power, her influence was felt and her friends were known. A young consul named Galba, purportedly related to Livia, owed his rank to this relation. Galba would be left millions in Livia's will and would much later be the first emperor uh, Mr. Manager. in the year of the four emperors and the first one killed. <laughs> Ironically, Galba's successor Otho also had a connection to Livia. Otho's grandfather had been raised in Livia's household and with her goodwill became a praetor, giving future generations a political legacy to aid them. This is how I win. Didn't do him much good as Otho would be killed a few months after usurping Galba. <laughs> Livia was long dead by 69 CE, this year of the four emperors, but it just goes to show that What we do in life echoes in eternity. Now to talk a little bit more about Sejanus, the Praetorian prefect Tiberius had left in charge of Rome, he was keen to dispose of anyone who challenged his authority. He is rumored to have even killed Tiberius' son Drusus, as Sejanus was definitely having an affair with his wife Lavilla. Lavilla is alleged to have been slowly poisoning Drusus so that his death looked to be of natural causes. That girl is But Tiberius never believed that Sejanus actually killed his son and clearly continued to trust him as Rome's chief administrator. Sejanus went on to exile, arrest, or kill those who might challenge his power, including members of the imperial family. Agrippina the Elder, Germanicus's widow, and her children were included as targets. 
Livia was not an ally to either of them, yet while Livia was alive, Sejanus had Agrippina under house arrest, too afraid to explicitly move against her while Livia lived. Tiberius did not help Agrippina, who had been a thorn in his side ever since Germanicus's death. Livia died in 29 CE at the age of 87, having succumbed to another illness. She had outlived Augustus by 15 years. Not much was written about Livia in the three years between Tiberius moving to Capri and her death. Speaking of Tiberius, he never left Capri to tend to her on her deathbed, nor attend her funeral. But here's the thing. I'm glad she's dead. Not just glad, I wished she'd die. Wished. When I heard she was dead, relief flooded into my veins. Tiberius wouldn't return to Rome until eight years later at his own funeral. A slew of deaths followed Livia's passing. As stated by Anthony A. Barrett, during her life, she had saved the lives of several senators. After her death, there was a surge of treason trials. Between 15 and 28 CE, 30 trials took place. It's treason, then. In 30 CE, six were charged. It's treason, then. In 31, seven. It's treason, then. In 32, 18. It's, it's treason, then. In 33, 10 known by name, 20 anonymous. It's treason, then. These figures might suggest a trend, but the relationship between cause and effect is unproved. Taking Galba, for example, a man blessed by Olivia's favor, he was never targeted and due to receive a sum of Livia's large estate, although Tiberius only paid a fraction of what he was due. Livia had died years before Sejanus would be executed, so Sejanus had no one to check his aggression towards Agrippina. She and her sons Nero and Drusus were exiled from Rome. Nero would die under mysterious circumstances, and Agrippina and Drusus would both starve to death. And Livia's old friend Placina, wife of the man who allegedly killed Germanicus, was also destined to die after Livia. She committed suicide in 33 CE after being told she would once again be tried in court. But being that this is Livia's story, her passing on its own was pretty peaceful, and she died in high regard. The Senate sought to honor her, although Tiberius refused many of the proposed measures, like issuing coins bearing her portrait. The Senate also voted to honor her by building an arch, an honor reserved for victorious military commanders and therefore men. This appears to be the first and last time the Senate granted such an honor to a woman. Top five things simps always do. Number one, they double text. Number two, they do pickup lines. They get jealous every time their girls around another guy. They undervalue themselves and they never go out for their dreams. And they try to build beautiful architecture for a woman even after she died. And today, you can find that arch built. Oh wait, Tiberius didn't let it be built. You tricked me. Deceives you, mom. Trick makes it sound like we have a playful relationship. While Livia had had a charmed life, there were dark moments she had to endure, most of which centered around her family and her contentious relationship with her son Tiberius. But to look at an overview of her whole life, it wasn't that bad. All things considered, by far the most dangerous time in her life was as a young woman when she was targeted by Octavian, then married to him and would rise and fall by his fortune. Of course, they kept rising. There was still danger, but they both managed to become elderly and die of final illnesses much more peacefully than many of their contemporaries and old enemies. 
While ancient historians, specifically Tacitus, report pretty salacious behavior from Livia, Tacitus was born almost 30 years after Livia died. The actual records of Livia during her time when she was alive was overall very positive, although Tacitus himself notes, Records were falsified through cowardice when the emperors were still alive and infected with hatred after their deaths, noting possible biases in the records depending on when they were written. As far as why Tacitus seems to have had a bone to pick with Livia, Tacitus was generally biased against the whole imperial apparatus, the only government he knew during his lifetime, but he was also pretty harsh to all female imperials that he writes about, not just Livia. He particularly despised imperial women who tried to influence politics, and Livia was not the only offender in that category. Still, in his writing of Livia's obituary, Anthony A. Barrett notes his assessment of Livia is commendably restrained. He depicts her as a woman of old-fashioned virtue and of impressive noble lineage. But to reflect on Tacitus's portrait on Livia in general, on the negative side, he observes that she was more affable than women of the old school would have thought was right, that she was a match for her husband's craftiness and her son's insincerity, and that she was a domineering mother. This restrained tone is notably absent, however, from the allusions to Livia in the preceding narrative. Here, Tacitus's hostility is blatant. He can scarcely mention her name without a touch of malice. No amount of vintage dresses gives you dignity. And he creates a portrait of a scheming and ruthless manipulator that is glaringly at variance with the general picture that appears in other historical authorities. As noted earlier, Suetonius's and Dio's criticisms of Livia are relatively measured. Suetonius, in particular, finds only vague gossip to use against her. Apart from an allusion to Augustus's distress over her intrigues, Pliny has nothing critical to say, while Velius, not surprisingly, and Seneca, somewhat remarkably, are unashamed admirers. This is not to suggest Tacitus fabricated information. Rather, the problem is that when he has two sources, and one is unfavorable, he either will follow the adverse accounts or will likely at the very least cloud the issue by raising it as a possibility. There would certainly have been a large body of anti-Tiberian and anti-Livian material for him to call upon. The memoirs of the younger Agrippina were certainly known to him, and they were unlikely to have many kind things to say about Livia. He also knew of bitter letters denouncing Tiberius sent to Augustus by Julia during her husband's stay in Rhodes. Apart from using information hostile to Livia, Tacitus was most skillful at presenting information that, while strictly accurate, created a damaging effect. Outside the early period of her marriage, it is probably fair to say that he never made a substantial allusion to Livia that is not designed to arouse animosity, often by presenting the details in such a way that one cannot help drawing an unfavorable inference. Often, he will avoid doing this explicitly, but will protect his historical integrity by citing public opinion or speculation. So yeah, if Tacitus was alive today, I would bet my life savings that he would be doing his own research about the coronavirus vaccine. Uh, but also, please get vaccinated while you're here. While Livia would be dragged by people like Tacitus after her death, during her lifetime, like Augustus, she enjoyed having religious association with her. In the 20s BCE, there was a cult dedicated to her in Athens, and Livia wasn't the first or last living Roman to be worshipped by peoples in the Eastern Empire, as ruler worship was ingrained even before Roman rule. They love me. While Tiberius didn't fully acknowledge her will or back every honor the Senate wanted to vote upon her, emperors after Tiberius would ensure that she was more fully honored after her death. 
Her great-grandson Caligula, Rome's third emperor, ensured people like Galba, who had been snubbed of their due inheritance by Tiberius, received the sum that Livia intended. And similar to how Julius Caesar and Augustus were acknowledged as gods after their deaths, Livia was acknowledged as a goddess by the fourth Roman emperor, her grandson Claudius. She was named the Diva Augusta, the Divine Augusta, on the anniversary of her marriage to Augustus. Olivia, the diva Augusta, would become associated with other existing goddesses, including Juno, Hera, Ceres, and Demeter, among others. A charmed life and afterlife, indeed. As a young woman, her father committed suicide, defeated by Mark Antony and Octavian. Octavian would prescribe and pursue her and her husband, Tiberius Claudius Nero, whom Livia dutifully stood by. When they returned safely to Rome, Livia caught Octavian's eye, and she sought a life with him, a life they shared for over 50 years. They survived all the challenges that came their way, not that there were many after the great last external threat of Antony and Cleopatra. The gravest concerns in Livia's life after this were her family, which included premature deaths and a difficult relationship with her son Tiberius, who retired once while Augustus lived, that she helped repair, and basically retired again near the end of her life. As stated by my boy Anthony A. Barrett, na, 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 diva is a female version of a hustler. <laughs> Livia was a prominent figure in Roman society for most of her long adult life. Yet we have surprisingly little direct information about Livia the person as opposed to Livia the wife or mother of the princeps. To some extent, this was doubtless her own doing. Although she was capable of considerable charm and affability to the extent of earning a mild rebuke from Tacitus for displaying these qualities more than was traditionally expected in women of the old school, behind her public persona, Livia maintained a deliberate reserve. She may not have been so inclined by nature, but she certainly was by circumstance. Seneca calls her a woman who was the most diligent protector of her reputation. She felt obliged to conduct herself always in such a way that there would be no criticism of her, not only on major issues, but also on trifling matters. And that has been a consistent theme in this miniseries. Ancient writers and sources paid far less attention to women than men. There are far fewer records on women like Livia, Servilia, and Octavia than men like Augustus, Julius Caesar, and Mark Antony. Nonetheless, Livia is a fascinating woman who found a long, enduring love with a man who tormented her family as a young woman. She built a very successful life with him and was a near-flawless paragon of Rome's expectations and virtues ascribed upon women while quietly influencing the most powerful man in Rome. After her husband's passing and her son took up the mantle of princeps, Livia retained prestige and influence. Yet Livia's golden years at the start of the Pax Romana, Rome's golden age, were not so golden. She still flexed her influence in these final years, yet her relationship with her son deteriorated, and they were evidently on poor terms at the time of her ultimate passing. While her body was not assassinated, her character has been, by some ancient historians, the most histrionic of which lay several bodies of her own family at her feet. They think I did it, but they just can't prove it. As well as driving Tiberius to an early retirement in Capri as an imperious dowager empress. But if Livia was alive to defend herself, she would probably tell Tacitus, All you are is me.
people have to bend over backwards to legitimately argue that Livia had ample motivation and resources to kill the likes of her nephew Marcellus, Augustus's grandsons Gaius and Lucius, or even Augustus himself. And while Livia and Tiberius' relationship, or lack of one, was quite possibly a factor in Tiberius leaving Rome, there was a lot more that Tiberius was frustrated at besides his mother. So those two major complaints people sometimes have about Livia are both pretty illogical. That is a most illogical attitude. Livia did live an extraordinarily long life in the ancient world and did take care to stay healthy in body and mind. Physically, she ate and drank a healthy amount and notably not to excess in the realm of mental health. And as mentioned last episode, she essentially sought counseling after the premature death of her son Drusus. I find this speculation in Livia, First Lady of Imperial Rome, funny. Anthony A. Barrett notes that Livia had a variety of recipes to cure ailments, and yet we should not discount the possibility that the combination of birth words and ash of swallows did more harm than good, and that she might indeed have helped dispatch some of her patients despite the very best of intentions. Now, nowhere does it state that any of the above-mentioned alleged victims were treated by Livia's remedies, some of whom were hundreds of miles away from her when they died, but the thought of Livia accidentally poisoning someone she was trying to help, like some made-up goop medicine, uh, is pretty funny. Not goop, that's, that's terrible, but Livia maybe doing it could be, I don't know. This concludes the gigantic three-part episode about Livia. As evident that there were several uh, months in between the release of part one on Livia and part two, and hopefully not long between parts two and three, this was tough to write. These previous episodes about Servilia, Fulvia, and Octavia were all within the breadth of history I knew fairly well, basically between the Ides of March and the death of Augustus, but since Livia lived a lot longer than Augustus, there was more that I wanted to learn more about. So reading Anthony A. Barrett's book, Livia, First Lady of Imperial Rome to Learn, uh, that was something I had to do. The thing is, it's kind of dry, um... So it took a while. I also made the really good decision to annotate and record some notes, yes, but I recorded them in a super janky, disorganized way. And also, um, it was a couple months between me finishing the book and completing the scripts, and the book is also divided into a chronological and thematic section on Livia's life. So I was not setting myself up for remembering what I had read in the most efficient way. That said, clearly, I could not have completed this episode without Anthony A. Barrett based on the number of quotes by him, so I do appreciate your good work, sir. Death of the Roman Republic stands on the shoulders of giants like you. Another thing I frankly struggled with was knowing what to write and what not to write. Like the bit in part two of Tiberius retiring for the first time, that caused like a months long writer's block because it did not literally happen to Livia, and I had talked about it already in the main series, Death of the Roman Republic finale, so I felt like I was repeating just a lot of what I had said without offering new insight but I finally made some decisions on how to talk about it. I finally cut through that Tiberian knot. But still, writing about events after Augustus's death was also tough because Livia isn't recorded to have done that much relatively. Much more is written about Tiberius's rule and Sejanus, um, and I hope I didn't disappoint you by not really going in-depth in much in Tiberius's rule because 
I'm just less familiar with that, have read less sources based on that, and also this was supposed to be focused on Livia. I was also kind of disappointed to hear about an older, crueler Livia digging up those old letters to hurt her son. I'm a bit sad. Actually, I'm lying. I'm quite devastated. And I should note as to not set a gigantic double standard. I mean, Augustus was the guy who wrote these spiteful letters in the first place, pointing out the flaws he saw in Tiberius, what he didn't like about his stepson become adopted biological son. You guys know me. I find Augustus endlessly fascinating. Um, dude was like a straight sociopath who exiled like at least three members of his family, leaving them to die and let his biological great-grandson die in the cold as a baby because he was born illegitimately. Like, Augustus, not a great guy, you could say. Um, I've said it before, but I don't know. This is Livia's episode, and even though it was Augustus who was saying those unkind things about Tiberius talking behind his back in letters to Livia... The fact that Livia, Tiberius' own mother, held on to them and when she was mad at her son, showed them to her son, that's still not cool. I don't have the milk of mother's kindness in me anymore. Yeah. That udder's been dry for a while, though, hasn't it? I also kind of touched upon this at the end of the Livia Part 2 episode, but regarding why I was gone so long, because I wanted to have... The, just the second part, a whole summation of Livia's life done in May 2021. But it, in that May and over summer break and Thanksgiving break, I was struggling to find motivation to complete this. Writer's block and all. But I resolved to finally complete this over winter break, so I do apologize for that long absence, and thanks for sticking with it. Frankly, I am a bit burned out of talking about Roman history from the Ides of March onward, which is funny because part of my issues writing this was talking about new history, but that's, I don't know, that's my burden. This whole show and experience is really fun, and I appreciate anyone who downloads and listens to it. I just have a little less fun right now because I feel like I'm repeating some of my old information, basically. But as far as the future of this podcast goes, DOTRR still isn't going anywhere. Evergreen content, re-listen to it again, show it to friends or something like that anytime you want to. And uh, there's at least one more notable woman from the Roman world that I want to talk about, and she will get a two-parter at some point. The thing is, she is ultra important after the Ides of March, which, as I said, I talked a lot about already, but I hope to release those in 2022 at some point. And besides teaching being, you know, my main career, I have also enrolled in graduate school. I am pursuing a master's in English, and I will be taking one class this spring, hopefully two classes in the summer, but overall going to have less free time. That should be stressful and exciting, and I also want to give a thank you to you listening right now, because you listening helped get me accepted, because I put on my letter of intent that I had self-produced this podcast series, and that at the time, it had over 5,000 downloads, which was a concrete demonstration of my writing abilities for the university to consider, so thank you so much for listening. 
It may be a while before you hear my voice again on this feed, but stay tuned because there will be more content of some sort in 2022. I know that at least, but if you want to see me write some more dumb stuff, I am too active on Twitter at D-O-T-R-R-Pod, and please rate the show on Apple Podcasts if you haven't. Like last episode, I want to give a big thank you again to Twitter friends Mia and Liv for their recommendations uh, for Taylor Swift songs to use, uh, which apply to a lot of Livia's life, apparently. Apparently, you can follow Mia at Obscenity. Maybe that's how you pronounce it. Uh, and you can follow Liv at Catboy Catalina. But links to their Twitters will be in the show notes, too. Listening back to that, I apologize about the word salad. I just appreciate everyone who listens to this. And there was one more shout out that I wanted to make. There is another podcast called The Explorers, and she had a mini series that came out a couple of months ago like over a year ago at this point called augusta the first ladies of imperial rome and it talks a lot about the julio claudian dynasty in these early years like livia gets some screen time but also screen time but people like agrippina the elder agrippina the younger are a much bigger focus So if you are interested in that period, and I know I didn't really talk about it terribly much, but you should listen to Augusta, the First Ladies of Imperial Rome, that miniseries on the Explorers' feed. Finally, one of my favorite things to edit of all time for DOTRR was Augustus and Livia's hypothetical reaction to his ascension as Rome's princeps. So if you would like to indulge in that again, the last four minutes will once again be a mix of that with a couple of extra sound effects. The final seconds of this episode will also have a swear word, just so you know. So thank you so much. With all that said, friends, Romans, and countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. I wonder what Augustus said to Livia the day he was made emperor, what he came home and said, how he explained his new powers, what words they exchanged, and how they reacted. I wonder. Hello, handsome. What a day, hmm? I won. Have you ever had a dreams that that you um you had you 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 could you do you you want you you could do so you you do you could you you want you want him to do you so much you could do anything? Just when I thought I was out, I am the senate. They pull me back in. I love the you. I love the republic. What's that like, like to live deliciously? Oh, it's beautiful. What's that like to see the world? King of the world! I gotta admit it! I did not see this coming! In a million years! I did not see this coming! I'm in the Empire business. Fun again.
our powers have doubled since the last time we So that's it was such a long, long con. Yeah, and a lot of it is subtle. <laughs> a lot of it is subtle. None of it is illegal. Strike to claim it. A strike to claim it. And he 